Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. Ravi, what's new, man? Well, I was going to ask you, how's baseball? Good, good. We're it's exciting. Like we, there were a couple news articles about you know us launching this new team in the National Men's Adult Baseball League. It's also really funny because baseball is locked out, so we. Yeah, you're like a league of their own. Right yeah, now. you're providing the <laughs> it's providing right. the baseball to, to to the masses. It's pretty wild, but I hope I hope they play baseball. Actually, the big sports thing that happened in our house over the last week is True's second grade basketball team, which is so ridiculously good that they've played. They've been the only second grade team in the third grade league all year. Um, that they finished their season undefeated. Uh, and it's just wow. kind of ridiculous. Now he's like not a starter, uh, but you know he plays. He's on got the team. some skills. We played horse. We played horse in your driveway mm-hmm. once. Yeah. yeah, he's a pretty good little. I mean, you know, this is he's basically like on on like an AAU team as a second grader. Like so, right. like he's like, Dad, next year I, I might want to play on a team with that just plays against second graders. So maybe I can like <laughs> get the ball more. And I'm like, I think that's a good idea, buddy. But yeah, maybe mix it up, mix it up. Yeah, but yeah, man, what about you? You know, it's just New York. So, the, you know, one day it's snowing, one day it's 80 degrees. And so I'm just holding on and getting some outdoor exercise in. You know, that's what, that's my thing. I just love getting outside. So it's, but, you know, things are relatively quiet around here in New York. Everything's opening back up, which we'll talk about. And people feel optimistic on the ground. And things are, it's two years now since this lockdown. Uh, and New York finally feels great. Like my office here is in Little Italy. And when you walk outside, there's tourists everywhere from Europe, which is the first time I've seen it in years. Apparently I say Europe strange, uh, I've been told, but- Wait, but say it again, say straight, it again. Uh, Europe. Yeah, you have like an H it's in It's like there. an H, yeah, it is, yeah. Mm. It's like, because I'm Southern, you know? I, well, I don't know if that's so, well. Yeah, that'd why? be like Europe. Like you Southern people say, why? Why am I? <laughs> yeah, we yeah, do have Europe. some extra wise, yeah. some extra ages. All yeah. right. Well, um, yeah. I mean, so there's all that sunny good news. So we should obviously pivot to talking about not as sunny uh, good news, not good news. So you know the 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 other the real news. What's going on? Yeah, so Russia and Ukraine agreed to a 12-hour ceasefire to allow civilians to flee uh, six of the worst affected areas. That seems to be having mixed results. You know, Ukraine has said that uh, Russia has continued shelling the besieged city of Mariupol. 
the Russians hit a children's hospital and maternity ward today, uh, just as we're sitting down for this podcast. And the UN estimates that at least 2 million Ukrainians have fled. And so this is a humanitarian crisis. And obviously, some of the biggest news this week is that the Biden administration yesterday, Biden himself announced a ban on imports of Russian oil, gas, and coal. And he said, quote, defending freedom is going to cost us. And certainly it's costing us at the pumps. Gas surged to $4.17 a gallon, which if not adjusting for inflation is the highest it's ever been. And once you do adjust for inflation, it's probably the highest since 2008, which is probably the highest we've had in modern times. 79% of Americans say they support this ban. There seems to be bipartisan consensus on the Hill in support of this ban. But Jason, I'm, I'm wondering... You know, we flagged this previously, but, you know, how long is the American public going to be willing to make sacrifices in support of this war? I hope it's I hope we're able to do it for the long haul. But what's your sense? I actually think that the American public would be willing to make sacrifices for the long haul for this war. So but what I'm worried about is how effective will the Republican strategy to blame gas prices on something other than this war be right because like if if it is right now that is the the state of the conversation the state of the debate which is people understand that that a big part of the reason for the spike in gas prices is not this immediate ban that just happened but you know the interruption to the markets that is the war and the sanctions that we're levying as a result right so people understand that and i think given that question that clearly they're willing to say, okay, let's continue that sacrifice. But you can actively see the narrative, uh, like the attempts to shift the narrative by the Republicans. Like they've been calling on Biden, and I think rightfully, to make this ban and to make this move. But at the same time, you can see what they're doing. They have a simultaneous adjacent message, which is he shouldn't blame gas prices on this because it's not right. That's not the reason. It's his fault. And he's got to increase domestic oil production. And all this. So like they're trying to messy that narrative so that they can cause political damage to Biden. Well, on that front, Jason, let me read you a tweet from you know your favorite pundit. This is you know Ben Shapiro, which I know we can't let an episode go by without <laughs> yeah. uh, giving him a voice here. We're, we're a podcast for the voiceless. Uh, but here is here's what he tweeted predictably. He goes, Biden cuts energy production, prices go up. Ukraine war breaks out, prices continue to go up, but faster. Biden blames Ukraine war, calls for more green energy, reaches out to Venezuela. Now. There are a couple things in here. He says Biden cuts energy production, which from everything I can see is false, right? So the background here is, and I think this could be confusing to listeners, is that the Biden administration did take a hardline stance at the beginning of its administration against further expansion of oil production by issuing an executive order in January 2020, 2021 against pausing any new federal oil and gas leases and sales on government-owned land and waterways. But that was actually blocked by a federal judge. And then as inflation started to surge, the Biden administration actually began issuing drilling permits and actually has issued more drilling permits than Trump. Now, I have mixed feelings about that, but they've certainly been increasing production. And there are actually 9,000 plus approved oil leases that oil companies are not tapping, which I'll come back to. The Biden administration also last year in the Gulf of Mexico put for sale 80 million acres in the Gulf 
And while only 1.7 million of those acres were sold, this was the largest offshore oil and gas lease sale in U.S. history. He's also released record amounts of oil from the strategic reserve. Those are the two things he can control. That's what Biden controls. He controls drilling on federal lands and he controls the strategic reserves. He's been releasing all of that. You know, I could have mixed feelings about that. But other than cutting the Keystone Pipeline, which we could talk about, he hasn't, he's actually increased domestic production. Actually, let's do that sidebar on the Keystone Pipeline real quick, right? Because like I saw, you know, a clip where, is it Ducey? Is that the White House correspondent for Fox? The dude who, yeah, that sounds you, right. you know, yeah, you always yeah. see the, the Jin Saki and, and Steve Ducey sparring uh, clips, you know, and, yeah. and her generally, I think, coming out on top. And he he asked her about that. And, you know, this has been they've been attempting the Keystone thing for quite a long time. And she gave the same answer that's accurate and it's been given for a long time, which is, look, that is a pipeline that moves oil from place to place. It is not oil production. It doesn't have, you know, to the extent that it ever has any effect on oil prices, it's artificial. It's it's a scapegoat uh, yeah. that oil companies use. So I just, you know, our listeners are going to hear Keystone pipeline stuff from their like conservative, uh, you know, folks in their social orbit. So I want to get that out there. Well, but- yeah, just to, to, to add to that before you get move off of Keystone, we get 3% of our crude oil from Russia, but 21% of our refined oil from Russia. And the Keystone pipeline is crude oil. Uh, and so it doesn't solve the Russia issue at all. It also, you know, we're technically energy independent, but it's a market. We don't control it. So it's, you know, these companies could might as well be anywhere at this point because we don't we don't as a government control the the means of production of oil in this country like Saudi Arabia or UAE does. So what that means is that pipeline is transporting oil and a lot of this stuff makes its way to the Gulf where two thirds of the refined oil in the Gulf gets exported. So it's not even for domestic use. And so now I'm going to prompt you to go back to where you left off, which is this topic of, you know, the uh, leases that exist for drilling for oil, because that seems to be the oil lobby's move, which is they keep saying you aren't granting us enough permits. uh, Yes. And that's BS. It's total BS. And, you know, there's this this player called the American Petroleum Institute, which is, you know, great name, by the way, Orwellian name. Uh, they are the lobbying arm of big oil. And they went after Biden recently saying, you know, basically saying essentially what Shapiro is saying. A couple things about the American Petroleum Institute. They have been critical of sanctions against Russia every step of the way. They did, They were critical in 2014 when Russia took Crimea. They were critical in 2017 when Congress was trying to pass harsh sanctions against Russia for interference in the elections. And even up until earlier this year in January, they were cautioning against, quote, unintended consequences of sanctions on Russia. Why? Because they have a, a very tight relationship with Russia because they often are part of oil exploration and exporting in Russia. Now, to some of their credit, like ExxonMobil have have just have made announcements that they're pulling out, but only when it became untenable. Now, they also, if you go quote after quote from these uh, CEOs of either fracking companies or oil companies, they've made it very clear that given more leases or being urged by the federal government, they are not going to increase supply. Why? Because they're getting windfall profits and they have a basic cartel going on here. Both the fracking companies do and the oil companies in the United States where they're saying, we don't want 
to increase supply because right now we're getting so much per barrel of oil and profit that we don't want to mess with this good thing we have. They said it explicitly. So this guy, Scott Sheffield, who's the CEO of Pioneer Natural Resources, which is the largest shale operator in the U.S., said, quote, Demands from Wall Street that operators use their oil price windfalls to pay dividends mean they're not going to increase production. In January, Exxon uh, CEO Darren Woods said, quote, profitability of uh, barrels that we're producing are, are his focus, not volume, meaning not more exploration. So, These people yeah, are saying just, it out loud. Let me just yeah. translate this. It's we're not going to use our money to get more supply. We're going to use our money to send money to our shareholders, right? So that they yep. make more money. And then rather than focus on having more supply, we're going to focus on making more money from each barrel. Like we're just going to yes. charge more. So I think what all this means is when you get in a conversation about gas prices, I think you have to simplify it and you have to say, all right, Let's say we don't know anything and we just walked up on this thing and all we found out was gas prices have gone up. If you were going to figure out who's probably the most untrustworthy actor in this equation, would you say it is this politician, Republicans, Democrats, or would you go, it might be the oil companies that can make a shitload of money when the price goes up? Like, is it possible that they're to blame here and that they need greater regulation and that we we do need, as Biden has been saying and as the Democrats have been saying for a long time, a greater emphasis on competition in the energy marketplace so that renewables and alternative fuels can be used. You know, once again, we're not the UAE, we're not Saudi Arabia. And there have been some interesting articles about maybe we should start to think about giving the government more. You know, I'm generally pretty skeptical about government intervention in the economy in some of these ways, meaning like like us seizing the, the means of production just because there's only so many things the government could do well. But in this case, there's a good case to be made that the government should do what the UAE and Saudi Arabia does, which is they have the ability to say, if we're going to call ourselves an energy independent, we need the government to have the ability in emergency situations like this to force oil companies within our jurisdiction to do certain things to increase supply uh, and lower prices. Uh, I think that makes sense. Otherwise, let's not call ourselves energy independent because we're not. We're still energy dependent. Here's the argument for that, in my opinion. It just comes down to making the point that it is not as if there's this completely free market just trucking along and then it would be the government coming in to intervene. The reason that fossil fuels are the king of energy in this country is because it's been manufactured to become that way, right? I mean, like because for years and years and years, through enormous government subsidies, they were propped up over alternative sources of energy so that alternative sources of energy never really had the opportunity to get a footing in the marketplace, either on the electric production side or on the transportation side. So to me, like it is a righting of a wrong, not a government intervention in and of itself. I had this realization this week. If I were to ever have like a really ridiculous writer in like an appearance contract, it would be you must have a Helix mattress for me to sleep on. I think you know this, but Helix has left the bedroom. They're also making sofas now. They launched this new company called Allform. And anybody who's a connoisseur of my Instagram knows that I frequently post from my office where I have an Allform couch and Allform chair. What I love it is just like how easy it is to customize it. And it's a fraction of the cost of traditional stores. And it's just so easy to put together. I like our Allform sofa so much that like my Helix mattress, I can sleep on it. 
my writer could just as easily say, you know, and or an all form sofa because I could just sleep on yeah, that. Just add that. But also, like, you have to sit from time to time, too. So why not, why maybe, not put that on them? Maybe too? I'm just changing yeah. this notional fantastical writer that doesn't exist. All right. Well, look, they even offer a forever warranty, like literally forever. So to find your perfect sofa, check out allform.com slash majority 54. And all form is offering 20% off all orders for our listeners at allform.com slash majority 54. One of my best friends, Sujit Rao, is getting married. He's going to be getting married in Tuscany. And because of that, I have been more urgent about my Italian language study lately. I've been basically going into Babbel, my favorite language learning app, every single day. And what I really love about this app is that it uses multiple modes of learning. Sometimes you'll learn topically. So like this will be the day you, you work on foods and then you may work on countries, nationalities, et cetera. But they'll also give you contextual conversations so that you hear people talking almost like they would in real life. I found that it has dramatically improved my ability just to listen to authentic conversations in Italian and understand what's happening. Babbel speech recognition technology helps you to improve your pronunciation and accent. In addition to lessons, you can access podcasts, games, videos, stories, and even live classes. Plus, it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. Start your new language learning journey today with Babbel. Right now... When you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, you'll get an additional three months for free. So that'll take you listeners right through Sujit's wedding. Go to Babbel.com and use the promo code MAJORITY54. That's Babbel.com, B-A-B-B-E-L.com, code MAJORITY54. Babbel, language for life. I want to pivot to another topic about Ukraine that I've been seeing a lot of chatter about in the last couple of days, which is the no-fly zone concept. And, you know, I want to walk folks through this because... Yeah, school me on this because I'm confused because it seems like the kind of thing we'd want to support, but but it, it but really smart people seem to think it would be a, an act of escalation. So what's your... What's your sense? Well, and what's interesting about this before I lay it out is that you're kind of hearing it not in a partisan way right now. Like you're, you, you've got some hawkish folks on the right who are saying we need a no-fly zone, uh, that we need to institute one over Ukraine. And then you've got people on the left who are coming at it from more of a uh, like a in order to create peace, a humanitarian sort of motivation, like let's create a no-fly zone because of, as you mentioned, things like what we found out this morning about the maternity ward at the hospital that was bombed by the Russians. Oh, and probably most importantly, you've got President Zelensky calling for a no-fly zone. So at its base, obviously it makes a lot of sense to consider, right? At its, at, you know, at a prima facie case, like you've got Russia, not not with air superiority over Ukraine. They still have an air force and their air defenses uh, have proven pretty effective. I mean, we've given them quite a lot of stingers, for instance, and that kind of thing. But, you know, full on air defense networks are are, are proving pretty effective. But still, it they obviously have the upper hand in this air war and it is causing a lot of death and destruction. But here's the problem is that and to do this, you got to back out and just sort of explain NATO for a lot of people who aren't that familiar with it. Like, NATO is a defense pact. And and what it means is, is that, and, and that's why it was such a controversial idea and why it was such a sticky issue of whether or not to bring Ukraine into NATO and why, why Putin was so motivated and scared by the concept. Because what NATO really is, is a group of countries that say, you know, if you attack one of us, you've attacked any of us. If you go to war with one of us, you are at war with all of us. Now, what that means is, is that if the United States or Germany or France or Britain or anybody in NATO sends jets 
over Ukraine in order to execute a no-fly zone, and they are engaged, which they will be, with a Russian bomber or fighter. Like that's the only way to enforce a no-fly zone is that if 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 Russians are getting ready to drop bombs on Ukraine and you're enforcing the no-fly zone, you have to shoot them down. And the moment that happens, that's World War Three. Because when you, when, I mean. Putin has said he would consider a no-fly zone to be an act of war. Now, Putin, like, is a terrible person who has every motivation in the world to say that. But there's a lot of argument for the idea that it that it would be an act of war. Now, it wouldn't it would be a just war, but it would still be World War Three, and that is how you escalate this situation into World War Three, and it's how you get us even closer to the brink of possible nuclear exchange. And so, and so just a question to you though is like, how do we then avoid like children's hospitals getting bombed? Like what happened today? So, so that's why you're seeing in the news the conversations about Poland and the United States trying to figure out how to get you know, fighters, MiGs actually in this case, which are, you know, Russian aircraft that Poland has, that the idea was is that Poland would maybe give those to Ukraine. Now, what's happened instead is that we've had this blip in the unity in the West where Poland has said, well, we're just going to offer them to the United States and the United States can give them. But it's like hot potato. Nobody wants to be the one handing it off. Absolutely. But it's got to be figured out. It's got to be figured out immediately. Like, yeah, like, there has to be a way without instituting a no-fly zone using pilots and aircraft from NATO countries, there has to be a way uh, to increase the ability of Ukraine to defend itself in the air. It's it's imperative. But that's but people need to understand that it is a, a, a terrible moral choice, but the cost of escalation uh, into a direct war with the United States and Russia or, or with NATO and Russia is an enormous cost. Well, we'll continue to monitor this. You know, one more thing about this Ukraine story that I wanted to bring to your attention is uh, this. Uh, there's an article in The Atlantic by David Litt, former Obama speechwriter, that I found really fascinating and dovetails with some of the conversations that we've been having on the show. Namely, this question that we asked a few weeks ago about how do we universalize this struggle for democracy and for freedom? And he wrote an article saying, look, we can learn something from the Ukrainians on the ground and how they're going about the messaging uh, in this war and actually comparing the Ukrainians to the Russian government's response. And essentially, he comes up with four lessons from on the ground. And I'll just quickly bullet them. And then um, I would love to hear which of these really stand out for you. He, you know, Lesson number one is telling personal stories over uh, focusing on abstract concepts. So Putin is in the abstractions where he's talking about denazification, et cetera. Whereas the Ukrainians are posting videos of you know personal stories, like an old woman heaping abuse on Russian invaders. And so he calls the Ukrainians almost like anti-rhetoric, like meaning they're not focused on platitudes. They're like, here are concrete situations. Relatedly, the second lesson is, you know, actions over words. And, you know, the sad reality of what the Ukrainians are going through is that, you know, the inspiration is just the moves that they're making on the ground, whether it's fighting the Russians, not leaving their homes, traveling, you know, hundreds of miles to the borders, et cetera. Um, Third is not just condemning your enemies, but pressuring your allies to do more. Right, which and also can include you know Western companies, et cetera, and then fourth, and this one I find the most interesting for our project is treating ordinary Russians as their allies and not their enemies. And so, an example of this is Ukrainian military invited Russian mothers to collect their sons um, who had been taken prisoner. So, any of these stand out for you, Jason, in terms of lessons that we could take 
back here to the United States in our fight for democracy? That's the one that stood out to me the most as well. And, and it's hard to thread that needle because, you know, when you when you think about the idea of, as he puts it, um, driving a wedge between everyday people and their corrupt and morally bankrupt leadership, if you think about the strategy of the Democrats in 2020 in particular, which was a winning strategy at the presidential level uh, to drive a wedge between everyday Republicans and Trump. Yeah, that worked. But what you've got to do, you know, when you use the analogy to American politics is you've got to do more than that. You, as we found, that's that's a strategy with with a limited effectiveness, because then, you you know, right away, then you go to the Virginia election and people go, oh, well, it's not Trump on the ballot. And so now you've not brought any new people to your side. So you have to do it differently here. You have to drive a wedge between everyday people and the Republican Party. You have to demonstrate how out of touch they are and how much they're hurting folks. And I think back to, for instance, uh, and, and oh, by the way, in order to do that, you've got to be talking about issues that directly affect the people who are their most reliable voters. Now, when I say that, people sometimes mistake that for you have to move to the middle. No, I'm talking about the things like what J.D. Shulton talked about when he came on the show. And he talked about uh, in his campaigns in rural Iowa, focusing on anti-monopoly language and the way it affects farmers, for instance. So to be to be really anti-monopoly is to is to be very progressive. But to focus that message on the way it affects people in agricultural communities is to do exactly what Lit is talking about here in the Atlantic, which is to drive that wedge between the people who tend to support these folks or who would be in their constituency and their corrupt leadership. Yeah, such a great example of the monopoly stuff, you know, because like we're, we're going to focus, for instance, maybe on the, the oil companies, right, which is kind of where the left wing, I think, spends some time thinking about it. But you can also say, look, like the meatpacking plants, like like Biden, Biden talked about in his State of the Union address last week, you know, four companies essentially control all of meat processing in this country. That's bad for rural America. And they resent those companies. And if we could play those politics better, maybe we can bring some people on our side. I also just think it's good to leave the door open always. Like even to people I think who have views that people may find offensive or are really, really far from, you know, what people believe is like, you know, the right thing to do on any given issue. It's like you know, at least my politics, I believe in the capacity of people to change. And I think we it's a necessity at this point, like for us to be able to make this country work. There just are too many people who aren't with us right now for us to be able to get the things done. We need 60 votes in the Senate right now under current rules to pass the kinds of stuff that we need. And we need sustained majorities to fix the Supreme Court and all these other things, never mind to win back state legislatures, which are like crazy gerrymandered against us. So we need like 60 plus percent of the electorate, really, uh, probably more to get the things done that we need. And that means that we need to convert people. And that means that we need to have a like, little bit of a generous spirit towards them and patience with them. And I know that's really hard and that's probably controversial. Well, and there are a lot of our friends on the left who view that as appeasement of, you know, racism and everything else. And the problem with that view is that while it is you know, not difficult to understand, it ain't going to win you anything. And that doesn't mean that you have to therefore, like, compromise uh, when it comes to racism and fascism. What it does mean is that you can't stop trying to win those people over because the math doesn't line up. You have to keep trying to convince those people. And I mean, you wouldn't expect Ukrainians to just be like, I hate all Russians. 
if they if they want to end this war, they understand that if they want to end this war, they're going to have to have a political pressure put on Putin at home by Russians who become familiar with what's actually going on. It's the only way really to get it done, combined with his other point about calling upon your allies, which I thought was a great point and something we should probably talk about more, which is, you know, getting American companies to become allies in in these fights. And I guess the way you know it's effective is because when you see Josh Hawley and Ben Shapiro and these people referring to the woke corporate mob, what they're doing is they're trying to pressure corporations in the other direction. They're trying to pressure corporations not to give in to consumer pressure. Uh, and, you know, they don't Except want when the it NFL comes to China, to though. That's fine, which I actually yeah. am with them on that. Like, fine, let's pressure China, but let's be consistent. And why is that? Because China is not a part of their political base. It doesn't provide them political power in this country for the most part, for most of them. Whereas, you know, having usually almost unified support of establishment corporate America has been a strength for the Republican Party. Right, right. You know, obviously, the it goes without saying that the Ukrainians are super inspirational. And you know, one thing that's powerful about what we just talked about is that, you know, the Ukrainians sense something that we should take stock of, which is the most powerful thing Putin could have is a hatred of the enemy. And the minute you take that away from them, it deflates them, you know, and like, obviously, there's a lot of like hatred of the left that is disingenuous and like there's it's very hard to figure out how we could even control it but my only my only thought here is like let's at least not give them the easy ones right let's not give them reasons to hate us let's give them reasons to maybe find us inviting to their change like to accepting of the possibility of their change Ravi, I have had an extremely difficult couple of weeks, and I'll tell you why. Maybe too much information. I had a vasectomy last week. My doctor told me that one week prior to the vasectomy, I had to stop taking any multivitamins. Like I was excited to get the procedure complete for many reasons, one of which was I was like, I want to wake up tomorrow morning and take my athletic greens. I don't feel as good when I don't drink my athletic greens in the morning. Well, I'm glad the procedure went okay, and I'm glad you're back (laughs) on the greens. Uh, I love this stuff. And, you know, in the biz, they call it AG1 now, and you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food stores, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. And it's a special blend of ingredients that supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com majority. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash majority to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Jason, obviously everything's getting more expensive and I know that this is falling on the shoulders of a lot of our listeners and their families. And that's why I love this company, Upstart. It allows you to pay off your existing debt quickly with a personal loan so you could tackle your next big financial goal. Yeah. If you have multiple credit card balances each month and you're only paying the minimums, you're barely making a dent in your credit card debt. So Upstart can help you pay off your existing debt quickly so that you can feel like you're finally getting ahead. Upstart knows that you're more than just your 
credit score. So rather than looking at your credit score alone, Upstart's model considers other factors like your income, employment, and other information provided in your loan application to find you a smarter rate for your loan. You can check your rate without impacting your credit score in just five minutes for loans between $1,000 to $50,000. You can even receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com majority54. That's upstart.com majority54. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know that we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com majority54. Well, COVID, Jason, we have the lowest levels of new cases since last summer. Hospitalizations have fallen to two thirds from the January peak. The similar trends have happened in ICU visits and um, deaths are on the decline. It seems like we may be nearing the end of the pandemic phase here, almost two years to the day. Like I remember it was March 14th or 15th that uh, this city really began to lock down New York. I know we were kind of the leading edge in the country. It was frightening. Wow. I mean, like, I don't want to declare victory prematurely here, but it does it feel to you like we've crossed some kind of threshold recently? All I can tell you is that I've crossed a personal threshold and I'll get yeah, I'll get some hateful tweets for this. But like, I'm done. Like I did. What yeah, I was we supposed said to that. Do. We're those people. Save your hateful tweets, people. We said this a while ago. So yeah. like get it's, mad at us. Get in your time machine. Get mad at us a few months ago. I mean, yeah. it's just like because I, I, I uh, traveled a bit this week for work. You know, I was up in New York for a couple of days and then I was in St. Louis for a couple of days. And, you know, every place still has like the the signs on the door, you know, that say, you know, masks. It, mo- almost all of them say, you know, masks required. And then you go in and like hardly anybody's in a mask. And then uh, particularly restaurants where like it's like a few people are wearing masks, but then it's understood like the second they put the drink in front of you, that's over and people just walk around the restaurant with no mask. And then now I'm seeing a lot of the signs change to masks encouraged. And like, I've, I, you know, I carry my mask in my pocket and everything, but I don't know. I sit down with people and like, maybe they'll have the mask on and immediately they they take it off and go, are you cool with this? And you're like, yeah, and they're like, I'm done with it. So I guess what I'm saying is, is I know that there's always the risk of another variant and all that stuff. And I'll be ready for that. But like, I've gotten three shots. I've had COVID. I've worn my mask. I think I've done it right and I'm done. Well, I think like an interesting question is like, how does this affect our politics? And I think the hopeful spin on this is that maybe, just maybe, this will tamper down all of the divisions specific to this issue, right? Now, they probably won't completely go away, but I'm hoping we're going to be hearing less about vaccines and like vaccine refusal and, you know, like mandates and school closures and whatnot, like... I am really looking forward to the day when we can just get divided on other issues, <laughs> like you know, well, like it's gas hard. prices. It's hard because there's still a lot of people dying. Now, those people are unvaccinated. I know there are like a few cases here and there where it's someone who is severely, you know, immunocompromised who gets it, and then and it's a contributing factor. But like, I think you can, you know pretty well say like it's unvaccinated people who are now that's i'm not saying their lives are worth less or anything but i am saying that after two years we're at the point where people have made choices now 
we have to continue to encourage people to get vaccinated. We have to continue to encourage like we and I think we should continue to spend public health funds on campaigns to get people to get vaccinated. Absolutely. Like just like we should make sure that we actually use public health dollars to make sure people get like their basic vaccinations that we've all gotten. Like, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Can I just underline that for a second? If I were to to have our audience and, and people we advise to put their energy into one thing coming out of this pandemic, it's what you just said. The other vaccines do not let the covid politics bleed into the progress that we've made on every other vaccine and requiring that for kids to go to school, et cetera. That's my one ask. Yeah. And it's, it's threatening to do that in places like Florida and, you know, where they're just, you've got, I, th- I think, is it Florida where the, where the crazy like, state right. surgeon general has been like, no, we're not yeah. going to encourage vaccines at all. I think you're great. So, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right. and I'm also great. Um, yeah, you're and great I, too, yeah. <laughs> no, but like, so I, I'm, I'm still, you know, vigilant about all of that. But I also think, as we've been saying on this show for a while, that there has to also be positive reinforcement. There has to be an incentive for doing what you're asked to do. And I have done what I have been asked to do. And, you know, I... I, You're allowed to leave your house. That's the positive reinforcement now. Welcome. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so like like Diana was just in... um, San Francisco, and she told me that like at least fifty percent of people are wearing a mask outside. Cool. If you want to wear your mask outside, like like I don't judge you, but understand that that's not where we are in the rest of the country, and that's okay. Like that's okay. The one last piece on this, uh, there was, and this is almost like a retrospective. Like I was thinking about like what lessons do we draw from this pandemic, assuming hopefully that we've crossed some kind of threshold. And there was this article by Connor Friedsdorf in The Atlantic, and the title is Tolerating COVID Misinformation is Better Than the Alternative. And that really caught my attention. And I read this and I was like, wow, this persuaded me. Like basically what he's saying is there is a, there are a lot of restrictions on vaccine and other COVID-related misinformation. And particularly, he said we should be concerned about the government restrictions, either free speech infringements and where the government's like encouraging or trying to talk about requiring social media companies to crack down on, on COVID misinformation. And he makes an interesting point, which is like, look, we don't want this. Uh, and he says we don't want this for three reasons. One is because open discussion of vaccines enhances trust in them. And part of it is like, basically... He he gives the analogy of, say, like, let's go back to when Trump was still president and he was making all these claims about getting the vaccine out before the election. He was like, what if Trump had said that he was going to, like, mandate so- social media companies to stop spreading misinformation on it? Would that make you more or less trust <laughs> trusting in his policy? Probably less, right? And actually, like, the debate and discussion on the Internet probably would have helped. The second is that these these claims about what's in misinformation or not are often subjective. Like, he gave the example of Puerto Rico, a member of the clergy who was talking to his, his congregation about business closures that were going to come because of uh, COVID. And he was he was charged with a crime under the, uh, under their local law. And it turns out a week later, the very thing he was talking about passed. You know, there's examples of the lab leak theory and, and people not being able to share information about that. Or Nicole Malatakis, the congresswoman in Staten Island, uh, who beat Max Rose, 
shared a YouTube video that was critical of de Blasio about mandates, which to my knowledge didn't have any real misinformation in, and that was taken down. You know, and then the third is that he says that you create martyrs in these situations and that like in those cases, like it actually helps attract more attention to people. So I'll just pause there. There's a lot, but like it made me think, oh, maybe we should be a little bit more libertarian when it comes to speech, even if it's speech that we think is wrong about so COVID. The the I mean, I agree with his case when it comes, uh, for the most part, to actual government censorship. I mean, because like I believe in the First Amendment, and he sort of, you know, toes the line between being like he he. It's not fully clear where he is on the public pressure campaigns on uh, you know on social media companies to you know put warning labels on certain things, and and he's wise not to be fully clear on it because. I think that it's one thing if they completely shut something out. And in some cases they could. I think it's a matter of public safety that Trump can't get on Twitter, for instance, like in general, as a, as a free speech thing. But I think it's important to remember that, unfortunately, most Americans, I think, don't differentiate between censorship by corporations or private actors and censorship by the government and and don't fully understand the First Amendment distinction. And so as a result, like... To some degree, you are going to have First Amendment martyrs regardless because you still have a First Amendment. Joe Rogan still gets to say what he wants. He might, he, you know, if you were to put enormous pressure on him, he might have to do it on a different platform. But he's, the First Amendment still exists. So, so as far as the First Amendment martyr argument, to me, that's a little less persuasive just because I just think that's a part of the First Amendment. I think we're always going to have First Amendment martyrs in, in varying degrees. Yeah, I'm with you on that. And, you know, sometimes like these pressure campaigns, I don't always love what they're asking for, but I think they have absolutely the right to do what they're doing. And I think, you know, and, and I think in part, it's like what if you could design your own social media platform, what would it look like? Right. Because in, in part, that's kind of the question being asked is like, well, not what Facebook must do, but what should they do, right? And I think what complicates matters is these algorithms, which which are in many ways enhancing the misinformation, not just allowing it. That's my problem, number one. And number two is the presence of foreign actors on these platforms trying to weaponize misinformation to divide us as a country. I think if it weren't for those two things, Ravi Social, which hopefully would solve for those two things, would just have people with information showing up on their feeds to the extent I even want news feeds. That's just in chronological order of the friends that you actually follow, no amplifying anything based on engagement. And it kind of simmers things down. And if I were to amplify anything, I would try to create an algorithm that amplifies positive, encouraging content, not negative, divisive content. One thing that's interesting to me, and this is like a completely unscientific and not technical, just a user experience, uh, point, which is that I've noticed a lot lately that when I, you know, look at the trending topics on Twitter, there'll be like a top line thing that is a debunking of something. And it'll be in my case. And the way I think the reason I think it's not related to an algorithm aimed at me necessarily is it's often a thing I didn't know was happening. Like it's, you know, it'll be like uh, the photo that you've seen of Trump riding on a unicorn was actually taken in 2003 and not recently or whatever the heck. And and I'm like, oh, I hadn't seen anything about that. But I I guess that's that is a version of, I guess, censorship or, or whatever that isn't really that. It's actually just a social media company owning up more to what is basically its role whether they like it or not, in more of a journalism, delivering the news sort of thing. Like, hey, 
we're going to have a commitment to accuracy. We're not going to take this down, but we're going to put a top line thing that says, hey, fact check, this is not real. Road to the midterms, Jason. I know you want to highlight a race. Yeah, for for Road to the Midterms, uh, first, let me refresh everybody's memory about the approach we're taking on Road to the Midterms this year, which is we're making sure to focus on races that have a lot to do with upholding democracy in this country. And that is often going to be Secretary of State races. Uh, The Secretary of State in Michigan, Jocelyn Benson, is an outstanding person who has a lot to do with why we didn't actually fall to uh, a crazy you know, coup d'etat by uh, the Trump administration in in this last election, um, because she stood up and fought hard against, I don't know what to call them other than separatist elements in her state. And and I'll tell you a quick story about Jocelyn Benson, who's up for re-election this year. Um, I've known Jocelyn several years. Um, She ran for Secretary of State once before winning, um, and I got to know her uh, then. I actually think I met her right after I was elected Secretary of State, and she had, had just run, I believe, or was about to run and was not successful in her first try. But then I you know, stayed in touch with her. And then I remember I was up in, in Michigan in 2018 when she was running and I was like speaking at the state Michigan, you know, Democratic, whatever. And she pulled me aside and we were talking and, and I was like, so what's your strategy? How are you going to win? And she just said the coolest thing. She goes, well, look, here in Michigan, the Secretary of State runs elections and runs the DMV, other things too. But those are the two main things people know us for. I was like, and my reaction, because I always felt like the secretaries of state who had the DMV, I was always like, I felt pity for them because like nobody has a good experience. And she said, well, I'm going to make my campaign really simple. I'm going to tell people that whether it's the polling place or the DMV, we're going to get you in and out in 30 minutes. And I was like, that's incredible. And then I go, well, well, can you actually do it? And she goes, yes, I figured out how we can actually do it. And she's done it. And she's running for re-election in Michigan. And it's an incredibly, I mean, everybody knows how important Michigan is going to be in 2024 and every year. So look up Jocelyn Benson. Uh, Again, Jocelyn doesn't know that uh, we were going to talk about this. So find Jocelyn Benson, uh, make a contribution, and then tweet at her and and tell Jocelyn that uh, we sent you. All right, uh, leave us a voicemail so that you know you can tell us where we're right, where we're wrong, where you'd like us to you know focus more, that kind of thing. Uh, where you know stories of uh, you exercising your pledge to persuade, and you know what's been going on with you trying to persuade people to our side of things. 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M Gupta on Twitter and Instagram, and our show is at Majority Fifty Four on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Edie Allard, and Adesua Agbenile. And theme music is provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva Lucas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.